as many of you know, Palm Sunday, and uh, what a rich time of the year to celebrate um, our coming King. Uh, I remember as a child, I grew up in a very traditional church, the Catholic Church, and um, of course, every year on Palm Sunday, you, we had palm branches there, but then every year on Ash Wednesday, the following year, they would take those palms from the previous year that had now dried out, burn them down to ashes, and they would have them in the, sense, the, 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 the I guess, sensor, the things they would bring, carrying on a chain, and that smoke would be going everywhere, and it just smelled so amazing to me. <laughs> it's just one of those smells that I can still remember to this day. Um, if you would open your Bibles to Matthew the 21st chapter, the 21st chapter of Matthew. Uh, we are going to use this message to finish our series, Advancing the Gospel of the Kingdom. Uh, and the title of this message is Kingdom Logic. I, I would have probably done last week's message as the last message and this week's message last week, except that it happened to fall on Palm Sunday. So I said, well, we'll just flip that and, and, and that way do it right on Palm Sunday. So it might look like that we're really good at planning, but it's just kind of happenstance as things go. So, um, And um, the, the, the text that we're about to read is really, we tend to think of parables as only stories Jesus told, and they are that, but, but this is a living parable. It's an acted out parable. It's a, it's a prophetic uh, uh, symbol or sign by the way that somebody acts and lives. You see them throughout the Old Testament, but what Jesus does in this text is indeed a parable when, in, 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 a, in a real sense. So if you would read with me, beginning in Matthew 21, and we'll start in the first verse. And I'll be reading from the NIV. It says, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey uh, tied there, and... Uh, her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, it's quoting from Zechariah now, say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey on, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the, don the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest heaven! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him? Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants 
You, Lord, have called forth your praise. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we approach this text on this day that commemorates Christ's ride into Jerusalem, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. Lord, have mercy on us that we might be able to see. In Jesus' name, amen. In J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, or The Lord of the Rings, Gandalf, the wizard, is the embodiment of true wisdom. But, but his wisdom often appears, uh, well, foolish. Especially in refusing to take the ring of power. Yet his power is found in weakness. Tolkien writes, Denethor looked indeed much more like a great wizard than Gandalf did, more kingly, beautiful and powerful and older. Yet, by a sense other than sight, Pippin perceived that Gandalf had the greater power and the deeper wisdom and a majesty that was veiled. Not all were like Pippin, though. Other characters reject Gandalf's ways, believing that the only way to truly defeat the enemy is by wielding the ring. In the end, they are unmasked as fools. Their eyes can see worldly power, but they are blind to the power of wisdom. Our text today, the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, is in the same vein as what Tolkien was demonstrating. The NIV subtitles this section, Jesus enters Jerusalem as king. The CSB uses the more traditional heading, the triumphal entry. It is a triumphal entry indeed, but it is one that parodies the entry of kings in victory to their cities that they have conquered. Parody is something that humorously or satirically imitates something that is otherwise quite serious. Certainly in the world into which this was written, the entry of kings into capital cities was serious, not humorous, but in fact Jesus is effectively mocking it as he rides in on the colt, the foal of a donkey. To understand the parody, this mocking of the world's way of power, is to understand the logic of Christ's kingdom. Paul speaks of this kingdom logic and its foolishness in the eyes of the worlds in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 when he says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then he goes on to ask, Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Excuse me. The world sees this parody, but think that the joke is on us as believers in Christ. The 
earliest known image of Jesus on the cross uh, was graffiti etched into a wall in the form of a cartoon that was taunting Christians, mocking those who worship the crucified God. You can see this image here. It's found on a wall in Rome sometime in the late second century. Often, it's referred to as the Aleximanus Graffito. That's a crude drawing, of course, but it's of a human figure raising a hand in worship toward a crucified individual with the head of a donkey. To get the point, allow me to use the Old English, with the head of an ass. The taunt written beneath the picture translates, Aleximanus, that's the fellow's name apparently who is worshiping, Aleximanus worships his God. Apparently the person who drew it knew this Christian individual and mocks this individual for their worship of a crucified God. Living life in the kingdom of heaven as disciples of the crucified God requires us to understand what kingdom logic is, how it works, and to begin to live by it. To grasp the parody of our text, we'll explore four background texts to it from the Old Testament uh, under three headings. Um, we, we, we aren't going to actually jump into the Jeremiah text about my house will be called a house of prayer. That could use a message in itself. But there are three texts directly alluded to other than that in, in our passage, and then one that's implied. So we'll look at those. Under the headings, one, uh, a donkey, not a mule. Two, triumph over our enemies. And thirdly, an army of donkey cults. So under that first heading, a donkey, not a mule. If you would uh, read with me. Or, or, or look with me, it's, it's, we're going to explore Zechariah 9, uh, verses 9 and 10. Um, before we look at that, uh, there's a seminary professor who tells of how, uh, in the, his particular class about the life of Jesus, he used to give his students an exam at the beginning of the semester, um, opening day. And, and, and the test asked basic personality questions about their view of Jesus. Basically, what was Jesus like kind of questions, but they would have to answer on some kind of scale of what Jesus was like. And then, with just slightly reworded questions, so it wasn't quite as obvious, the same questions about themselves at the end, uh, or in the second section of it. And what the test revealed was not that they knew a lot about Jesus, but that the Jesus that they worshipped was a lot like them. In fact... Tests, when given over time, reveal that though people think they're becoming more like Jesus, the reality is that Jesus is becoming more like them in the way they think about it. It, it is this tendency to conform Jesus to our ways that explains what James Goggin and Kyle Strobel wrote and why it is true. Uh, they said, quote, In a culture drunk on power and in need of an intervention, the church has too often become an enabler. In a, tr- a culture drunk on power and in need of intervention, the church has too often become an enabler. It's in their book, The Way of the Dragon and the Way of the Lamb. And I think we become an enabler because we, we are just as keen to tell people that Jesus is just like them. To conform Jesus to what they are like so that they are happy and will keep coming. The problem is, We read about Jesus' triumph over our enemies, but we conceive of the means in worldly terms. We have our own version of painting crosses on our shields, as Constantine did, 
while wielding physical and emotional swords against people. We misconceive Jesus and His ways because we can't see clearly. It's worth noting that the scene that immediately precedes our text today, right before Jesus rides this donkey down down the valley and then back up to Jerusalem, right before He does that, there's a story about two blind men. Jesus, have mercy on us. Jesus, have mercy on us. They're crying out, and the disciples are like, be quiet. They keep crying out, and finally Jesus stops. What do you want me to do for you? That we might be given eyes to see. And so he restores their sight, and they can see. It's no accident that that story is placed immediately before this because we need eyes to see in order to understand what's going on in this living parable. Approaching Jerusalem from Mount Olivet, looking across the valley to Jerusalem, Jesus stops and gives instructions to two disciples to go and get a particular donkey and her colt that no one had ever ridden. This might seem like an unusual directive, so Matthew informs us that Jesus did this to fulfill a prophecy which Zechariah had given about the coming Messiah who would deliver his people from the violence of the nations. Let's read that text from Zechariah because he goes one. I want to read one verse further than what's quoted in Matthew to get some context. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle uh, bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now what is the significance of Jesus riding into Jerusalem from Mount Olivet on a donkey? What's the significance of him doing this on a donkey? Why would Zechariah use such imagery to begin with? What is Jesus connecting us to that Zechariah envisioned? Well, Zechariah himself was riffing off of a previous event. He was working with something the people already knew in their history. Zechariah was playing off the the story of when Solomon was to become king. Now, now, that's in 1 Kings chapter 1. King David, his, his ride of choice was a mule. A bit unusual for a king, but a mule. Uh, And all of his men rode mules. And maybe they were more populous there. Maybe they're more, you know, easier to access. I don't know, but but they they rode mules. And um, Solomon, when he was going to be, you know, inaugurated king, David, because you've got, you've got, uh, was it Adonijah over the other side of town? He's having his his uh, inauguration party, everybody's celebrating that he's declared himself king as the son of David. And so he's over here, and everybody who's anybody in town is over there, except for the few people that were still loyal to David. And David says, no, my son Solomon is going to be king. And so he says, you, you take Solomon, speaking to the priests and to his, his commanders, you take Solomon, you place him on my mule, and you ride him into the city and shout, You know, long live the king. And they did this. Now, what is the deal with a mule? 
Well, the kings of the nations didn't ride mules. Kings of the nations, well, they rode war horses. They were strong. They were scary. They were just slightly out of control horses that this general, if you will, or king, if you will, could control. And so they, 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 that was their way of demonstrating their power. And a mule, well, it's half horse. And it's half donkey. A pretty humble beast. It's a mixture. And so, <laughs> they would ride these mules. And yet, Zechariah envisioned a day. A different kind of day. A day in which the Messiah would come. And he wouldn't be riding a war horse. In fact, he wouldn't even be riding on a mule, which is mixture. But he'd be riding on a donkey. In fact, not just a donkey, a weak little donkey that's never been ridden because it's just too young to be ridden still. He envisioned a king whose power was of an entirely different kind. And Jesus is saying, I'm that kind of king. That's who I am. See, the kingdom that Zechariah envisioned was not a kingdom that was half worldly and half Christian, you know, if you will, or half worldly and half God's kingdom. It was pure God's kingdom. And so Jesus rides into Jerusalem on an ass. Now, again, that language best captures the parody which is intended. And a parody that goes, I mean, you can see it all the way back in the story of Samson grabbing the jawbone of an ass and beating the Philistines with it. I mean, it just, it's a parody. It's, it's just to show the, the absurdity of things. Apparently, the reputation of donkeys is well known. So as Jesus rides in, one might wonder if this were some kind of child's game that he's pulling off. And the answer is yes. I mean, just to put it in a modern language, it might help us get the concept. <clears throat> Today, generals might ride into a conquered city on what? The top of a tank, right? Or standing out the top of the turret of the tank. They're, they're going to be coming at you on a tank. Maybe some other powerful mechanized machine of war. Okay, that's the equivalent of the war horse. And then you might see a, a, a king who's a little bit more humble in his demeanor. He might come in um, some sort of like Hummer with machine guns mounted on top. It's not a tank. It's, it's, you know, it's a Hummer. You could drive a Hummer, but maybe not with the machine guns mounted on top. Okay? So it's, it's that sort of in-between. Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem in a VW Bug convertible. Like... There's no strength there. You're a target. You're easy picking. That's the equivalent of the donkey. It's, it's comical, if you will, in that it is mocking the world's way of power. Well, the disciples retrieve the donkey and its colt, and Jesus rides it down all of that into Jerusalem. The very large crowd begins a coronation parade in which they begin acting out the proclamations of Psalm 118. They're throwing palm leaves down. They're shouting. They're putting their cloaks on the road. Because they are seeing this is our king who will give us victory over our enemies. And that leads us to our second point, which is triumph over our enemies. 
See, the 118th Psalm is a victory psalm of God triumphing over Israel's enemies. That was the equivalent of rolling out the red carpet, if you will. They didn't have carpet back then, so they used palm leaves in their cloaks and put it on the ground. So that even the, the hooves of the donkey would not get dirty when walking into Jerusalem. Not his hooves, I mean Jesus' feet, but rather even the thing he's riding on. He's their king. And they begin shouting from the 118th Psalm, Hosanna to the Son of David. God save us. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Earlier in the psalm, you see that they were surrounded by their enemies because it says, All the nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord I cut them down. They surrounded me on every side, but in the name of the Lord I cut them down. They swarmed around me like bees, but they were consumed as quickly as burning thorns. In the name of the Lord I cut them down. I was pushed back and about to fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. Now, during the time of Jesus, they are surrounded by the nations. Well, Rome, to be specific. And they are oppressed by the nations, Rome, again, to be specific. And they are looking for deliverance from that kind of king, and they would like to cut them down in the name of the Lord. It's exactly what they would like to see done. And so Jesus comes along and acts out the very things that cause them to see that he is that king, but I can assure you they think he's coming to, to cut them down in some different way than he intends to. Some very different way. But there's a parable in what he's doing by riding on this donkey. He's saying, my ways are so different. My view of power is so different than yours. The way I do business is so different than what you think. He came to forgive the Romans. <laughs> they weren't really thinking about that <laughs> when they welcomed him, in, him into the, the city. There are two inaugurations that were going on in Solomon's day, and there are two inaugurations, if you will, going on in Jesus' day. His entry into Jerusalem is an unmistakable political act, but radically different than how they perceived politics at all, and radically how diff different than how we perceive politics. This crowd, which was not the whole city, acknowledged him as king. That was enough to get you killed in Rome. Much like Solomon's ride, in which there was so much noise made, and uh, you see this in, in 1 Kings 1, uh, so much noise made by the small entourage that was parading with him into the city that uh, Adonijah, who was already celebrating his own inauguration across town, and all his invitees, all the powerful people of the city, they heard it, this noise, and what do they say? What's the meaning of this? What's the meaning of this? Likewise, when Jesus entered the city, those not in his entourage asked, Who is this? All this noise. They hear him shouting. Who is this that they're shouting about? Essentially the same question. Well, he's the son of David, the one long expected to free Jerusalem from foreign domination. Yet this king triumphs not through violent revolt, but by faithfulness to God. By faithfulness to God, all the way to the point of death, which is the way, only way to true freedom. He is Israel's long-expected priestly king, whom the prophets said would come. 
His entry into Jerusalem is therefore rightly celebrated by those who are not um, uh, in power, but by those, but but by the people themselves, the that are that the masses that are looking for help and deliverance. But those in power, well, they think differently. Unlike Solomon, who rode into Jerusalem and went to David's palace, Jesus rides into Jerusalem and goes to his father's house, the temple. Because he is, in fact, Yahweh the king. Not an earthly king. The blind and the lame come to him in the temple. Interesting detail, because David had forbidden the blind and the lame from coming into his house. But Jesus welcomes the blind and the lame into his house. And he's gathering his army around him. We've got the blind, we've got the lame, and the next thing you know, we're going to have children and infants. And that's his army. But doesn't it all seem so fitting for a king who rides on the colt, the foal of a donkey? It completes the picture. And that leads to the final background text, which we're going to explore today, and that's Psalm 8. And under the heading, an army of donkey cults. When the Jewish leaders heard these things, they were indignant, it says. Love that word, indignant. You know, just like, it just sounds like what it is, indignant. They were indignant. I looked up that word in the original Greek and it said indignant. <laughs> um, <clears throat> no, that's it's good. So it's helpful. Um, Convinced of how absolutely wrong this whole parade is. I mean, they're they're like, Jesus, why aren't you stopping them? Clearly, you should know that this is wrong. But Jesus informs them, yes, he did in fact hear the noise and he knew what they were doing. But not only was he not going to stop it, but he asked them a question. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants? Lord, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. It's a line from Psalm 8, which Peter Stonecipher preached on February 27th. And that line in Psalm 8 ends this way. Have you never read where from the the lips of children and infants you have called forth praise? And then it goes on to say in Psalm 8, to still or stop the enemy and the avenger. In other words, these infants and children are God's Military response, if you will, to the enemy and the avenger. Oh, that's going to work out real well. Well, just think of who our king is and what he writes. Peter called it in his sermon the God's army of infants. Well, apparently now in Matthew 21, it includes uh, uh, the blind, the lame, in addition to children and infants. Maybe this explains why he rode not just on a donkey, but on the colt, the foal of a donkey, so that so young it had not yet been ridden. I mean, if your army is blind, lame, and infants, shouldn't your ride be a baby donkey? It's only fitting. But who is this army of infants? But us. Is that not who we are? Is that not who we are called to be? 
Matthew's favorite word for disciples is little ones. Little ones. And then he talks about an army of infants. See, you've heard me say that we're not told about the Pharisees for historical accuracy so that we know what the Pharisees were all about. We're told about the Pharisees, what they were like, so that we don't become like them, right? We're given this account not so that we understand the events of that first Palm Sunday accurately, but so that we recognize what kind of king Jesus is and how we participate in Jesus' army of infants by following his ways. That's why we're given this story, is to help us see how ridiculous, how foolish in the eyes of the world are the ways of the kingdom of God in which we profess to live. You see, the, the mockery given in that graffiti on that Roman wall was not mockery given because they didn't understand Jesus. Well, they, they certainly did understand something about the gospel, enough to mock it. They didn't have eyes to see, mind you. But they saw the same thing we see, a crucified God. You and I look at that and we see love. We see amazing love, how can it be? that you, my God, would die for me. They saw the same thing and thought it complete absurdity and foolishness because, well, God would be all power, of course, and all power would never die, never give up himself. And they mocked it. When the world mocks the church, it ought not be for the stupid things we do, but they ought still mock it for the gospel that we believe until they be given eyes to see. Our primary arsenal for stopping the enemy, according to our text, is rendering praise to God for His goodness. It's a bit like the armies of Israel going with the musicians at the front of the line. <laughs> like, that's a real way to get your musicians killed. Then what you going to do? <clears throat> Again, uh, James Goggin and Kyle Strobel write, we are called to be a people of power, certainly, but ours is a kind of power antithetical to the power of the world. One of our generals in the army of infants described his strategy this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, quote, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong." Another one of our generals in this army of infants, James, the brother of Jesus, instructs, consider it pure joy when we face trials of many kinds. And then he says that poor believers ought to take pride in their high position and rich believers in their humiliation. What kind of silliness is that? I think this is a child's game. Yes, as a matter of fact. And we must become like children 
if we're going to live in the kingdom of heaven. It's no wonder we need to be given eyes to see. Remember, I pointed out earlier that the story immediately preceding this is about the blind men who need eyes to see, not coincidental. Well, the story right before that, by way of contrast, exposes why we so desperately need eyes to see. Because the story right before that is when James and John get their mother involved in a little plan to go to Jesus and ask Him for something. Lord, grant, will you grant us whatever we request? And what's that? That these two would sit on my right, your right and your left in the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> the other ten we read were indignant when they found out about them going to Jesus. Now, there's that word again, right? Indignant. Why do you think they were indignant? Well, because they wanted those spots. <laughs> Only one reason they're going to be indignant about that. They wanted a chance. So Jesus calls the whole bunch of them together. It's okay, boys. Come, 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 come. Sit, sit, sit. A little conversation here. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. You know, the, 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 the rulers of the Gentiles, the ones riding into town on their tanks or their war horses, they lorded over them and their high officials exercised authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as, ransom, as a ransom for many. If, if, if I can say this, can I just share a little something honestly with you? I, I'm sick and tired of hearing people excuse pastors who don't really love people, but they're great leaders, and so they can really... Man, they can make a dynamic church. Their character flaws, really, you have to overlook that because these are great leaders. The Gehenna they are. <laughs> Not in the kingdom of God. No. They've got to be slaves. Well, Jesus, on that first Palm Sunday, parried, parodied the ways of earthly kings by riding a young donkey into Jerusalem. An inhabitant of Rome in the late 2nd century mocked worshipers of this crucified God, suggesting that their God was a fool, an ass, if you will. Whoever that Roman was, he would have viewed the scene of Matthew 21 had he been there, and all he would have seen was a foolish, powerless man riding on an ass to, to what would become his death. You and I view the same scene, and we see the glorious ways of God, whose ways are much higher than our ways, as much higher than our ways as the heavens are over the earth. When we live our lives by faith, by kingdom logic, if you will, we will either be seen as fools and have to be okay with that, or as sons of God in the likeness of Jesus Christ. Those should be the only two options. Palm Sunday is an annual opportunity to test our vision. To ask ourselves what we see when we view the poor man riding on a young and weak donkey. And then to ask ourselves if we have joined Christ's army of infants. 
How can you import Christ's ways into your marriage? Into those conflicts which come up over and over and over again. Well, you don't understand. That has been coming up for fill in the blank. How do you ride your little donkey colt into that one? How can you import Christ's ways into your parenting? How do you take the position of weakness riding an ass into the fray? Humbled. How can you import Christ's ways into your finances? Well, that will surely feel like riding a young and weak ass into the parade. Because you'll be giving it away and doing all sorts of crazy things with it. Let's pray. Father, this morning we have the privilege of coming to this table. A table in which our King has given us His body and His blood to eat and drink. A King who, unlike the kings of the world who feed on the flesh and blood of their subjects, our King gives us His flesh and blood to eat and drink that we might have life. And yet, in the very eating, He transforms us into a people who will lay down our lives for others. As the old saying goes, you are what you eat. As we partake at this table, may we see glory and not folly in the one who gave himself for us. And then may we live in that glory that to many others might look like folly. Give you praise, Lord. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it.